This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... GMing Space Opera. Jorge Luis Borges. Storyscape. And Andrew Jackson Davis. in welcoming our new anchor sponsor, Phoenix, the illustrious Swedish gaming magazine, soon to crowdfund its Best of Phoenix anthology in English. You can tell it's illustrious because among their contributors is that gentleman scholar, Kenneth Height. And you can tell it's Phoenix because it's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Best of Phoenix celebrates its first glorious decade as a magazine devoted to role-playing games and gamer-friendly reviews. Peek deep into the heart of Swedish gaming. Thrill to the comic strip exploits of Burger Barbarian by Ake Rosinius. It includes Gladiators Gone X-Files, Miltonian Majesty, and at least one complete game, the Baroque Leviathan, Belly of the Beast. Plus such Haitian flights as Once Upon a Time in the North, Werewolves of Dacia, Demons of Memory, and The City of the Golden Vampires. Watch out for the Best of Phoenix campaign on Indiegogo in February 2014. That's Phoenix, F-E-N-I-X, from my pals Tove and Anders Gilbring. It's time once again to ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin... Ed Hirsch asks Ken and Robin, I just picked up a great space opera game whose name rhymes with Blash and Bars, and was wondering if Masters Ken and Robin had any particular advice to running the space opera, or sci-fi genre, distinct from the well-worn genres of fantasy and horror. Also, Ed continues querulously, why hasn't space opera had a pillar game in the hobby like D&D or CFC? Robin, should we uh, take care of the last question, which strikes me as slighting Traveler a, a good bit? or Yes, uh, let, let's do that. So so Traveler would be the pillar game for SF, and certainly it has a long and storied history, and I guess a complicated publication history. Mm. And I guess if there's a reason why it isn't immediately obvious to everyone that that w- was the pillar Traveler game, it's partly it's because of that publication history. They sort of had... Uh, travails, as it were, over the years. Um, in part, they sort of uh, were ahead of the curve in finding out what happens when you uh, advance your continuity mm-hmm. long enough to relaunch your whole property and w- whether people take to that or not. Trap yourself in your own meta plot. Yeah. Um, but also, I think that one of the things that prevents there from being a one single game in the SF category is that SF is not a structural genre. It does not imply a certain sort of story being told and therefore doesn't imply a core activity on the part of the players. So horror implies that you are confronting horrors and uh, either narrowly surviving those or being destroyed by them. Uh, The version of fantasy that is the default fantasy is uh, D&D and its various influenced bodies in the F20 tradition and there there's a very strong implied core activity of fighting monsters and gaining treasure. Whereas in science fiction, that is an entirely broad corpus of ideas and uh, sort of a setting, but it 
telling you that there's a science fiction story doesn't automatically imply anything about what the characters are doing. And what Traveler does is it tries to hit such a breadth of possible space opera plot lines that it didn't make it immediately obvious to gamers in the early days of uh, role-playing what it was exactly they were supposed to do. They could do all sorts of things in roving around in their ship, from being uh, traders establishing triangular trade routes to being uh, zookeepers tracking down interesting xenomorphs and bringing them back alive to uh, military campaigns. And so the problem of what do you do in a traveler campaign and the very breadth of its attempt to hit a lot of different space opera sources, I think is part of why it is a pillar game, but it's sort of a, a kind of a notch back in people's awareness because of that very specific problem to science fiction. So I guess the, I mean, the, that problem in science fiction is no greater than the problem in fantasy. It's just that D&D began with a really strong core activity out of the box, whereas Traveler didn't so much begin with a strong core activity. The Traveler began, I guess, par you know, paradigmatically as a sandbox game, while D&D &D began as a not-sandbox game, as a, as a narratively, uh, even structurally constrained activity. So I guess that would be, I mean, because if you looked at, you know, the world of fantasy in 1974, there was no immediate assumption that the core activity of fantasy gaming would be go into a dungeon, kill monsters, and take their belongings. I mean, I think that would be yeah, a... That's right. <laughs> fantasy also is not a, a structural genre the way that the horror or, yeah. or the Western are. But D&D um, &D was designed yeah. as a structural game in a way that I think you're right, the Traveler was not. Traveler was designed very much as a... If you've read it in a DAW paperback, you could probably play it in Traveler-type game. Right. And because of that, when the, if you didn't have a group that had a really strong idea of what they wanted to do with their crew and their spaceship, there's sort of an assumption baked into early traveler that you all have military backgrounds, but what you're doing now that you're out of the military is never clear. So it's suffered from that, you can do anything that you could do in a science fiction book, difficulty, whereas uh, later science fiction games have tended to be uh, license games that hit the very specific activities of their licenses, which tend to be investigative games. They tend to be mysteries. And that's the mm -hmm. whole idea behind Ashen Stars is that really, if you look at uh, Star Trek or to a somewhat lesser extent, Firefly or a lot of other uh, space opera games, that really they are about encountering a problem of the week and learning more about it and overcoming the enemies and solving that problem, which I guess sort of moves us more into the first part of the question, which is how do you adjust to running science fiction? So Ken, what would be your first piece of advice to someone who's run horror and fantasy before, but is now embarking on uh, a space opera game, which presumably will have, first of all, a, a tighter focus, or maybe that is the first bit of advice is to find out what you're narrow doing. down yeah. and find that core activity. Yeah. The, um, I mean, I'm right now running a science fiction game, which may or may not be space opera, depending on how you define space opera. It is not a hard SF as we know it, uh, Jim. It is, uh, like I've said before, uh, Star Trek in the alien verse is sort of the feel that we're aiming for. So it's, uh, you know, spaceships moving faster than light to various planets, 
um, but in a very much non-domesticated, possibly dangerous universe festooned with xenoarchaeology and dangerous robots and things like that. And I think that the two things that I would say, first of all, is yes, know your core activity, get it, either buy in from your players for a lot of things that they want to see that they'll always be happy to see, or set your core story such that if you're all ex-military men, a la traveler and women, then you are, you know, uh, roving do-gooders who are going around shooting up, uh, you know, uh, the invading reptoids on, you know, the cannabis sector, or that you are, uh, like you say, you know, all zoologists who are going and grabbing xenomorphs and bringing them back alive, or that you are, a la Ashen Stars, you are uh, roving troubleshooting problem solvers who will set things right for a few uh, credits and a good word to the sector government. And you, once you begin with your core story, then the second thing that you really want to do is get your setting, I don't want to say nailed down, because one of the great things about science fiction is that you can always have something crazy over the next uh, on the next planet. But I will say that have the core assumptions of your setting fairly transparent to your, uh, to your players so that they know, you know, there aren't going to be bumpy forehead aliens or there are going to be godlike entities or there's not going to be time travel or you can upload your consciousness. Because if you start doing stuff like that, that's fairly crucial, uh, I want to say, you know, foundation material. If you start doing it halfway through, they'll begin to say, well, why doesn't Earth do all this great stuff? Or why haven't we met anything like this in the last, you know, thousand years of the Star Empire? What What's going on? And the fundamental verisimilitude of your setting will begin to suffer. And one other thing is that you are going to have to prepare to have a high mobility campaign where the characters are essentially nomadic and every adventure is a new place. And although they can run into recurring characters the next time they go to a space station or uh, those recurring characters can uh, pop up having found them somewhere in the space lanes, that more so than, say, your typical uh, fantasy game and to sort of a lesser extent a horror game, the characters are able to move from place to place, and that means they can easily get away from problems, and that means that if you are doing a Planet of the Week format, uh, which you don't necessarily have to do, but is implied in the term space opera rather than science fiction, mm -hmm. that uh, each planet should be very distinct, and you can use that cliche of, well, this is the ice planet, and uh, it has this social problem, and then next week is the lava planet, and it has this problem, and that's somewhat unrealistic because our real world has ice and lava and nice pleasant meadows and all sorts of different environments. And more but, than one problem. <laughs> and, and many, many problems. Uh, but what you're doing is taking advantage of the thing that that's space opera has uh, very often done, certainly done in the case of Star Trek, which everyone is very familiar with, which is taking today's issues, you know, the idea that science fiction is not about the future, it's about today, and casting them in sort of an extreme stylized way that allows the characters to engage with them symbolically. So you can then rip items from the headlines and transform them into the premise of your planet of the week slash adventure of the week. And the trick there is to do it in a way that is uh, disguised enough that it doesn't seem uh, trite or takes an interesting enough look at whatever the issue is that it doesn't show as just a exercise in preachiness, but gives the characters a genuinely difficult 
choice to make the way that our real problems on actual Earth today are difficult because there are different sides to them. Yeah, I think that um, that's w certainly one very, very strong feel of, of science fiction or space opera. It's your sort of your Star Trek model and that sort of feeling of social commentary or techno commentary is, I mean, if, if that's the flavor you want, that's the flavor that you like, certainly. But I would say, and again, maybe this goes back to your original point that there's more than one core science fiction narrative. Um, I would say that if the players are expecting either an Imperial Stars type story, a la Classic Traveler, in which you are you know, out there expanding the frontiers of empire, or conversely, if they're expecting a Star Wars type scenario where you are overthrowing the, the crummy empire, then problem of the week scenarios will seem either preachy or pointless in a lot of cases. And what you may need to do is be able to juggle um, any number of possibilities, assuming you haven't uh, nailed down your core activity to begin with, until you get a sense of what the players actually enjoy doing, and then start feeding that to them on the basis that their uh, their patrons and the and the folks in the star sector recognize that they're really really good at uh, hunting xenomorphs or shooting reptoids in the face, and keep bringing them more and more of those to do. And then you can build an actual arc that moves them through the setting in the same way that their ship is, you know, bopping back and forth from planet to planet. They'll start having common uh, foes or common patrons, they'll start having an effect on more than just uh, the ice planet or the lava planet, and they'll start having a story that is longer, you know, that, that stretches out longer for them than, well, I guess tomorrow we'll go to the Argon planet and see what happens. Right, and that implies either a hunt arc in which you are hunting the recurring characters and meeting up with them again and again because you are uh, deciding to do so, or a flight structure in which you're trying to avoid the recurring characters, or of course a combination of the two, where sometimes you're uh, searching for the people that you know and interact with that are part of this big overall storyline, and sometimes you're trying to get away from them. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the hunt or the flight are, of course, very common ones. Others include uh, sort of a quest, and that quest can be either we have to go to the edge of the galaxy and bring back the rock of pure unobtainium, or our quest can be we want to overthrow the evil galactic empire or just, you know, find out who killed my father or whatever that, that quest happens to be. And as you pursue that quest, you're going to trigger both hunts and flights in their in their rhythm and in their natural moment and maybe even have to solve the occasional planet of the week. I think that one of the things that is good about science fiction is because there are so many sort of trilogy-sized arcs out there in the source material, it's not that hard to figure out one that you enjoyed reading, whether you read it in Isaac Asimov or Robert Heinlein or Ian e M. Banks or saw it in Star Wars or saw it in whatever, you'll be able to adapt that to your own setting without it looking like a really blatant ripoff. Uh, just like when I put uh, Mimetic Warfare into my science fiction setting, I'm ripping off John Barnes, but no one of my players, they may not even have recognized it yet, but they certainly don't mind because it's not like John Barnes is um, a hoary, creaking cliche that everyone's tired of. The reference points that people will have are in common, uh, even if they're all avid readers of SF, because there are so many SF writers, are more likely to be cinematic and television. And one thing that you can do is get everybody together at the beginning and ask them what reference points they would like to sort of see mashed up in your X meets Y 
campaign concept. So you earlier re- referenced your, you know, Star Trek meets aliens. Uh, you could, uh, if everybody is a reader of Lit SF, they could just as easily, you know, do Jack Vance meets Ian Banks. But uh, one way to sort of drill down to what it is that they want out of a science fiction game is to solicit from them at the beginning what it is that, A, they think about when they think about science fiction, and B, what you want to do with that. One of the tricks about cinematic science fiction is that it is almost always another genre in science fiction clothing. So Star Wars, the first Star Wars, is uh, pretty much a, a Western in science fiction clothing. Uh, Alien is a horror movie. Aliens is a war movie. And so when you look at uh, that, that can sort of help you borrow structures from other places and give you a tone that is uh, distinctive once you mix it up with something else. And again, that's because you were mentioning that science fiction is not a structural genre in the same sense that, say, the Western or a horror story or a war story is. And it really is a lot of it, you know, and I don't mean this to be reductive, but it's about the clothing. It's about the spaceships and the robots and the psionics and all the science fiction-y parts, because those are the markers that tell you this is science fiction, not a contemporary story or not a historical story, because they take place, you know, in some sort of place, whether it's the future or a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, where there are spaceships and robots and uh, aliens, as opposed to a place where there are, you know... um, uh, internets and Russians, right? Right. And one of the reasons that is true in film is that written SF eats up exposition with a spoon and film, particularly in television to a somewhat lesser extent, uh, abjure and abhor exposition. And since there is so much explaining necessary in order to create the complicated thought experiment that many, uh, for example, hard SF uh, works consist of, uh, that you want to avoid that. And that's uh, a question that you want to establish in your middle ground when you play of if you have a group that really wants to hear you explain in enormous depth what their characters actually know about this otherwise sort of unfamiliar setting, you can venture more into the territory of uh, written SF, whereas if you have a group that wants to have a uh, fast, fun loosey-goosey, shoot them up with lasers, you're going to want to look more at uh, film and uh, television as your model for what they're expecting from a space opera game. And uh, as I say that, I I hear the uh, warp engines revving up, and I believe we're about to be uh, transported, hopefully with all our molecules intact, into the next segment. Join us in composing a wily kenning or two in praise of sponsor Sand and Steam Productions and their game, War of Metal and Bone, whose longships bear down on Kickstarter even as we speak. Built with Fate Core, War of Metal and Bone lets you tell the stories of brave warriors, Jarls, bone-bonded giants, uh, not to be confused with, although possibly not indistinct from bone-headed giants, and their defense of their holdfasts. In addition to the awesomeness that is Fate Core, War of Metal and Bone adds some unique features. Bone bonded or seer, thrall or yarl, War of Metal and Bone lets everyone play side by side using the same excellent fate mechanics. Create your own holdfast and add to the world. Every campaign begins with the creation of your own unique holdfast. 
Every session, we'll see you adding to the map you've made, uh, presumably making it progressively more Viking-y. This is your world. See how it changes. Form bonds with your party members, celebrate your warrior clan, and honor your history with your own sacred item. The war with the dwarves and their constructs rages across Midgard. What role will you play? So I've been thinking a lot about the Argentinian writer Jorge Luis Borges lately, and I thought it might be fun to talk about him as a key figure in the 20th century literature of the fantastic. And particularly, I've been reading a book called Professor Borges, which is a newly translated into English version of the introduction to English literature class that he taught in Buenos Aires in 1965. And so it's a transcription of uh, what it would be like to sit across the table from this uh, already uh, elderly, uh, blind, incredibly erudite man as he gave his extremely idiosyncratic version of English lit, which basically about the first half of it uh, takes you up to the Battle of Hastings. Mm -hmm. And then it skips to Samuel Johnson. Yeah. the um, uh, I, I actually got that exact book uh, for Christmas, and I read, I think, all of it. I, I, if I didn't read all of it, I read a lot of it. Uh, I may have skipped uh, one or two chapters. Uh, I think maybe the Battle of Malden I let uh, lie fallow for a while. Um, Borges was way more into Anglo-Saxon literature than even I am, which is uh, saying something, but he was quite the guy. Yeah, that's uh, it's a crazy good book, and it's even crazier at the notion that you're doing a history of English literature class that skips Chaucer and Shakespeare and Milton. That seems to me to be a very weird way to, to, to run a railroad, but obviously Borges uh, knew what he was doing. And when you read the book, he certainly refers to Chaucer and Shakespeare and Milton and assumes that his students uh, can follow along and, and know what he's talking about. And in... Uh, yes, well, one hopes that if they were English lit majors, that they also had somebody doing the regular boring foundational introduction to English lit course in addition to this extremely idiosyncratic, uh, very sort of narrational version of it. He is very interested in the biographies of the writers and uh, particularly the aspects of the uh, what uh, we as uh, Lovecraft fans might look at as the weird or eerie or uh, mythological elements of uh, both their, their work and their lives. And he's really working most of all to create in his students a love of an interest in reading. And so his mission is to make it uh, exciting and mysterious and therefore inculcate the same love of literature that he has. And uh, it's just sort of because of that, because it's not trying to be uh, an introduction to English lit, I don't need that at this point, and uh, probably none of our uh, listeners who aren't English lit majors need that at this point. Mm. But there's so many little sidelights and, and ideas in it that uh, it's uh, really worth uh, picking up. Uh, one sort of inspirational bit at the end, he talks about reading books, and uh, he says, I've always advised my students, if a book bores you, leave it. Don't read it because it's famous. Don't read it because it's modern. Don't read a book because it's old. If a book is tedious to you, leave it, even if that book is Paradise Lost, which is not tedious to me, or Don Quixote, which also is not tedious to me. <laughs> but if a book is tedious to you, don't read it. 
that book was not written for you. And uh, one of the big pitfalls of uh, someone who wants to always have a book on the go is that feeling of the dutiful read or the book that is just good enough that you're hoping to that will get good and then finally you will wind up putting it down. Uh, but, uh, you know, that's a real sort of uh, inspiration to me to uh, acknowledge that uh, my taste as well as Borges' taste should also be idiosyncratic. Uh, Robertson Davies makes the same point that anyone whose taste completely align with any canon, uh, and that would be, you know, the great literary canon, or I'd submit to you even the nerd canon, is someone who is just taking on someone's uh, taste and may well be a poseur. <laughs> Although I uh, I pity the poseur who uh, attempts to get cred with nerd canon. That, that would be a sad fate. Well, uh, getting cred with nerd canon is uh, one of the number one activities of, of nerds everywhere, Ken. <laughs> yeah, well. Um, we, I, we pity them, but. <laughs> I, I stand by my statement. Um, I, I think that part of uh, Borges' intention of, of dumping a book if it's not rewarding you is, of course, the fact that he, he was blind uh, from 1955 on for basically the last 30 years of his life, and, and he never learned Braille. So anything he wanted to to take in after that, he had to have someone else read to him. So I, th I think that, you know, you really don't want to be sitting there through, you know, and I'm going to say Bleak House because that's something that has stopped me, although I'll bet Borges devoured Bleak House. Um, but, you know, you'd really hate to make some poor schmuck be reading you um, uh, Bleak House or, or Theodore Dreiser <laughs> when you're bored too. Um, that'd be like the worst thing in the world. Uh, I, one of the many great things in, in that book is... Um, he has a lot of very, um, I don't want to say they're idiosyncratic opinions, because obviously everything about Borges to some extent is an idiosyncratic opinion, but it's very interesting to read um, what he considers to be the, the high points of literature. I mean, he's, he spends a lot of attention on, say, Rasselas uh, uh, by Johnson, and a lot, of it, a lot more attention on, on Robert Browning than I think anyone has spent since uh, 1965. And Robert Louis Stevenson is up, up there just like he was a, a big guy. And I was uh, delighted to see that uh, Stephen, one of my favorite Stevenson uh, books, uh, The New Arabian Nights, which no one ever gives any love to now, was also one of Borges' favorites. So I, I think that I've, I've, um, uh, I've gained a little uh, just by reflected light um, from Borges. An another great thing about it is that he uh, is looking at literature through the eyes of a practitioner, that he is a writer himself and his observations are writerly. So there is also some great implicit writing advice in there. For example, you know, he can't talk about Beowulf without uh, mentioning all of its blatant plot holes, for example. <laughs> uh, he talks about how, you know, ill rot it is that, uh, for example, all of the other uh, Jarls in the uh, King's Hall just conveniently all fall asleep like a bunch of dummies, even though they know that the uh, monster is coming. And uh, your mention of uh, Dickens uh, brings me to sort of an interesting parallel that he brings with Wilkie Collins, mm -hmm. and where he talks about plotting. Wilkie Collins was a master in the art of weaving complicated but never confusing storylines. That is, his plots have many threads, but the reader holds them in his hand. On the contrary, Dickens, in all his novels, arbitrarily wove the storylines together. Andrew Lang said that if he had to recount the plot of Oliver Twist and they were threatening him with the death penalty, he, who so admired Oliver Twist, would certainly be hung. <laughs> yeah, there's, um, there's a lot of good stuff like that in, uh, in, in the book. 
to sort of um, move it away from uh, Borges talking about other uh, inhabitants of the book hut, is there a, a, a sort of a moment at which you ran into Borges and recognized that this was the guy and that you would accept no substitutes in the entire Southern Hemisphere, or... Have you been sort of accreting him? Um, I discovered him at the time when one should discover writers, which is uh, late high school, early university. Mm -hmm. So uh, if anyone here has not encountered uh, Borges, the anthology Labyrinths, I think, is still your uh, nice, compact uh, place to go. It has many of his uh, classic uh, short stories, which uh, sort of in a very suggestive thought experimenty way. They're sort of the original sort of very uh, literary head trips. They was sort of, uh, and they're um, all compact and uh, they're very much in the uh, mainstream literary tradition rather than the uh, pulp tradition. And as such, he sort of epitomizes what you call the, the fantastic tradition where the, uh, the he is writing about uh, myth and imagination and strangeness and the weird, but the point is not to necessarily weave a mimetic reality of an unreal world and make it feel naturalistic. He's not writing a naturalistic piece set in an imaginary world the way Tolkien is, no. but is very much playing with these uh, ideas and, and themes in a way that uh, I find very uh, compelling and uh, I'd highly recommend. Uh, is there a particular uh, couple of stories of his that you would direct the reader to, Ken? I um, I suspect that I was rewritten uh, ap appropriately enough by Tlan Ukbar Orbis Tertius, his uh, short story of an encyclopedia that is begun as a hoax by an American millionaire. And again, it's always fun to read Borges when he writes about Americans and British people as exotic foreigners, that's one of the many great things about Borges, but that an American millionaire has a secret society devoted to creating a false encyclopedia about an imaginary world, and the creation of that encyclopedia begins to bring that imaginary world to life at the expense of our world. Um, people who are listening along who are big comics fans have noticed that uh, Grant Morrison did that in Doom Patrol, and obviously uh, Neil Gaiman did it in Dream of a Thousand Cats, but they're both uh, homaging Borges in Tlan Ukbar Orbis Tertius. I would also recommend, um, just as sort of a, a meditation, maybe, is, if that's the word I want, is The Garden of Forking Paths, which I read very early on in my alternate history perusal, and I, it, very, it almost derailed my entire pursuit of that question with its <laughs> sort of meta murder mystery war story parlor alternate history philosophical questioning uh, story, which is also a perfect short story in the sense that there is not a, a dull line in it and everything happens. You can trace out why everything happens, but the larger meaning of it is perfectly Borgesian, which is to say simultaneously completely clear and completely obscure. And I, right. I love that uh, that story. I'd also recommend, if you're interested, um, his Book of Imaginary Beings, which is a bestiary that contains some amount of things Borges kind of remembered and never bothered to look up. He uh, <laughs> And so, therefore, when I read it as a, as a young, uh, more humorless, more serious 13-year-old, and was like, but that's wrong. He's wrong about the Griffin, and it it, it sort of it sort of messed me up a little bit. And I, I hope in a good way. Attack pattern and different set of hit points. Um, Pierre Menard, uh, author of the Cahote, 
uh, is another uh, classic story you'll often hear referenced where someone sets out to, uh, of his own devices, completely replicate, not just copy down, but prepare himself to be Cervantes and therefore to write uh, word for word at the end of the process, Cervantes, Don Quixote. And of course, even though the end result is the word for word, the same book, he succeeds, it is also a completely different book because of the process by which it was created. And in that story, Borges says everything necessary to say about deconstruction before there were deconstructionists. Yeah. And of course, Borges wrote a Borgesian Lovecraftian story, uh, which is uh, called There Are More Things. And Borges spent a little bit of time uh, at some point denying that he'd ever read Lovecraft after having dedicated the story to him. And um, uh, he felt that the, uh, the the story was not successful for him, and he thought Lovecraft was simultaneously also a unsuccessful parodist of Poe, is what he said, which is certainly true of about uh, a quarter of Lovecraft. But I think that, you know, again, if you're, if you're Borges, the notion that you're going to write a short story as a homage to a writer who you consider a failure, I don't, I don't think that tracks. I think Borges saw in Lovecraft something and was trying to find it and couldn't find it in one story and got frustrated. And also the another one that has really stuck with me, the imagery, is, is the Library of Babel. Oh, yeah. Uh, which basically is a description of a, sort of an infinite library composed of hexagonal rooms where every book on the shelf is a different arrangement uh, in a, a fixed number of pages of the different 26 characters of the alphabet and the period and the comma. And that somewhere in this vast and infinite library, there is the one book that explains everything about everything in addition to all of this uh, dross and gibberish. And the trick, of course, is simply to find that one volume that is the perfect arrangement of all of those letters and pieces of punctuation. And speaking of punctuation, we've come to the end of this segment and must end it with a period. Sponsor this week is Atlas Games and their beloved time-honored storytelling card game, Once Upon a Time. As you might have been able to guess from that pressy in Once Upon a Time, players tell a story together using cards. Each player has a number of cards with fairy tale elements on them. Like a dragon, a stepmother, a journey, a palace. Each player also has one ending card. Like, and so his wound was healed, but his heart remained forever broken. To play Once Upon a Time, one player starts telling a story and laying down their element cards. For example, once upon a time, a brave knight set out on a grand adventure. And then you play your knight card. But other players can get control of the story. When a new player takes over, they continue where the last player left off. Weaving in their own element cards. The goal is to play all your elements and then play your ending card so the story makes sense. Great for role players. Great for kids who are usually better at it than adults. Great for fiction writers to sharpen storytelling, if not editing, skills. Pyramid Magazine called it one of the best games of the millennium. Games Magazine called it the best family card game of the year. Designed by, among others, James Wallace of Baron Munchausen and Nobilis fame. 
The third edition of Once Upon a Time is out now, with a bunch of expansions and more on the way. But Atlas Games has a problem. They still have copies of the second edition left. For a limited time, Atlas is blowing out the still great second edition at a liquidation rate that includes shipping and handling? Check it out on the web at atlas-games.com slash Ken and Robin. So, what are the key things to remember? Once Upon a Time is a card game that's great for role-playing and storytellers. Check. It's an award-winning game created by a towering genius of gaming. Check. There's a limited time chance to check it out at a liquidation pricing. Check. And all the details are at atlas-games.com slash Ken and Robin. Indeed they are at atlas-games.com slash Ken and Robin. When we catch a glimpse of ourself in the mirror, we see that we have donned yet another of our many hats. And among my many hats, or in this case, among Robin's many hats, is a hat that can be used with any tablet device to tell any kind of uh, fantasy role-playing game. Robin, tell us of your Storyscape hat and what uh, it is up to in terms of doing just what I said, I guess, playing games on tablets. So this is a project that actually has its secret origins here on the podcast. If uh, you will recall from uh, not the most recent live from Dragon Meat episode, but the one from uh, 2012, I was asked if I could get a chance to work on anything, what would I want to do next in terms of role-playing game design? And I said, well, I think the future really is going to be in tablet applications. As tablets become increasingly ubiquitous, there is so much that you could do if you had the uh, budget and digital team to put together an app that basically served as your rule book and your resolution system at the same time. And uh, hearing that, uh, the uh, Jake Boone and his team at a startup company called Slabtown Games uh, contacted me to see, first of all, if I might want to consult on it a bit. And our discussion wound up in my becoming a lead designer for the game. And so uh, my assignment was to then create the basic mechanics, what you would get if this was a role-playing game book, but broken down into all of the choices that you would make as you use this game around the table. And it's very much a tabletop game. It's not a computer role-playing game. It is a game where the tablet app takes the place of your rules book and decides what happens for you while you run a standard uh, talking and hanging out with your friend style role-playing game. So when you're setting up a campaign, you will get a series of uh, questions that will enable you to set the parameters for uh, what the game are. Eventually, they want to uh, make it multi-genre. So my task was to build something that could be implemented in any genre that wasn't genre-specific. Uh, but they're starting with fantasy because that's the most obvious uh, one. So you would, for example, as you're designing your campaign, you might decide that you want the combat system to be more punishing than the default. You might decide you don't want halflings. Uh, you uh, can, uh, you know, decide how effective uh, healing potions are. You get all these different options in your setup, and then you invite your players. Uh, your players then, uh, perhaps at their leisure, perhaps sitting around the uh, table with you, depending on uh, how much advanced homework they want to do, then fire up their character generation uh, system, and that can be as simple as hitting a couple of buttons. It's like, do you want to play the simplest possible character? Uh, 
you're a fighter. Is your fighter male or female? What's your character's name? Boom. And then you get the preset character. Or you can go through even more choices and decide, oh, no, I'd maybe rather be a sorcerer and I'd rather be a blaster type of sorcerer. And you can, you know, make uh, lots of choices uh, and customize your character from the get-go, or you can just uh, get started and go. And then when you uh, play the game, you'll be uh, looking at a map when you want to move your character, uh, it will show you all the different spots on the map that you can move your mm -hmm. character to in this sort of 3D isometric view. Right. You hit the spot. will then give you a series of alternate routes if there's more than one route. So you can decide, perhaps I'd rather skirt the fire trap, or maybe I want to risk uh, going past the fire trap in order to get at this guy more effectively. Kind of like an XCOM. Yeah. And then during combat, the uh, game is keeping track of all of the different factors involved in the resolution of combat. And you can have things like, for example, the stretch goal for the Kickstarter that they have going uh, on now and will still be on when this episode drops. Uh, one of the stretch goals will be to have fog of war effects so that you only see as much of the map as your senses allow you to see so that the uh, character who can see in the dark uh, sees more of the combat area or the character who can see in heavy rain conditions or the character who climbed up on the top of the pillar and is shooting people with his longbow. Right. Um, and one of the things that I wanted to make sure to do was to not just take what you can do with a standard role playing game and its set of resolution mechanics, but to do something that took advantage of all of the extra computing power and handling capacity that, an app is going to have because the exciting thing about this design wise is that once you discard the whole idea of a learning curve, because it's all going to be very simple from the user's point of view, uh, because they don't have to remember, you know, does this stack with this other thing and, or, uh, or just the sheer number of different factors that you can uh, track uh, the, uh, so the resolution system is one that you would never want to use in a straight up, tabletop game because what it does is it tracks the number of factors working for you and against you in any resolution, whether that's you swinging an axe or trying to jump a pit or trying to convince the duchess to finance your mission. Um, you can have all sorts of different positive and negative factors. And uh, the first positive factor you get that uh, is over and above the negative factors gives you a big bonus. And then the next one gives you a, a slightly smaller bonus. And each additional one gets smaller and smaller along the way. So if you stack up 16 different bonuses, the first one is way more important than the last one. Uh, but what that also enables us to do is allow you to continue to narrate things and have a sense of what's going on in the game because uh, it will then, if you're successful, it will pick randomly from that list of positive factors and say, well, you uh, succeeded this time because uh, you are uh, your personality type, you're uh, eloquent, and the Duchess likes eloquence. And so you then have a little, uh, it doesn't do the narrating for you, but it just gives you a little springboard to the narration, which of course you can ignore, but then allows you to get to uh, the GM enough uh, leeway to sort of help describe things, or the player may be describing things in certain instances. Uh, but it also drills down into that uh, fantasy of uh, a game that, uh, you know, tracks all sorts of things and, mm -hmm. and really uh, pays attention to all sorts of different factors, which is what I think people want in crunchy or simulative games. So that even though it's not a physics engine, it will feel very crunchy while still being very easy to operate. And that, that was sort of what I was going to get at was 
when you think of a game that can be in in an app and can be run on the tablet, you th- you think of games that are uh, legendarily uh, full of stuff, right? Full of um, I don't say cruft, but certainly full of lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of special cases. And it might be your um, uh, iron, your old Iron Crown, Arms Law, Claw Law, etc. Law. It might be GURPS. It might be Hero. Any of these games that have been around for uh, a long time and that really catered to that level of um, uh, of tactical uh, mastery and system buildup, and that is, to put it lightly, not really your design footprint, are you going back and trying to recapture your inner Steve Long to build out a game that is really, really, really complex, knowing that you can make it as complex as possible and it's not going to hamper the play experience at all? Or are you building a Robin Laws game that you're then coming up with a lot of special cases and, and exception-based uh, mechanics for? Um, I'm not sure how to answer it, that question except to say that the core of how it works is very simple. Which is also true, I should say, before I get, you know, angry uh, uh, piles of three die sixes thrown at me. Which is also true, of, of course, of GURPS and of HERO. They're very simple engines, but with a lot of special cases. Right. Um, and this is, it, it basically sort of regularizes all the special cases into that plus or minus, that what I call it, it's a tag-based a role-playing game. Mm-hmm. And so the spot that you're sitting on in the map has a bunch of tags connected to it. That tag might be its terrain type, might be the weather conditions. So you can have a game that, you know, takes wind direction into account to determine where your flask of flaming oil lands if it doesn't hit where you wanted it to hit. But at the same time, feels uh, both complex and narrow. So I guess what I'm trying to do is hit the sweet spot between those things is to use the perceptions and experience that I've gained from making simpler games uh, into building something that is not simple but feels easy to use and feels in- inspiring. And so it's there's no point in the process where I went and, you know, we got people to go out in the field with all sorts of altimeters and things on them mm-hmm. and, and get in fights and determine what the physics of a real world fight is right. Yeah, it's 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 not simulative, like you said, because you don't want the physics of a real world fight right. in a uh, escapist game, because the physics of a real world fight are in a one on one. The superior guy waits for the other guy to make a mistake and lays him out, and in a war, you step into the kill zone and you die. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, neither of those things are the way that we imagine uh, fights being in action cinema or in role-playing games. So it's uh, really a, a matter of sort of blending, taking a look at the impulse behind wanting encumbrance to be tracked, but folding it into a simpler structure that also pays attention to why that might be interesting or or not in the narrative. So it's not just about, you know, what's the weight that people can carry, but where's the point where the amount of things that you can carry stretches verisimilitude? Because this is something that can be fun again if all of the homework is taken out of it. Mm -hmm. If you don't have to keep tracking the math of, okay, well, I dropped this piece of gear and this other piece of gear. Well, now now it matters again how much stuff you're carrying. Uh, And it doesn't hurt anymore to figure that out all the time, or it doesn't hurt all the, you know, to figure seven negative factors versus 13 positive factors. It's all uh, handled uh, smoothly. And even things like, for example, failing forward when the system, uh, when you decide to launch a challenge, a, a 
pitting your skill against some sort of obstacle, one of the options that reminds you is, can you imagine an interesting consequence if the character fails? And if you say, well, no, it's a, it says, well, then don't launch this challenge. <laughs> then stop doing that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so it is definitely taking uh, the emotional impulses of the uh, that earlier, uh, more crunchy simulationist mindset and fusing them to the overarching concern of how does this advance the narrative and how does this make the game into more of a fun experience uh, and finding the bridge point between those uh, with the aid of the app. Now, uh, to what uh, how expandable is, uh, even within, say, the fantasy you know rule set, how expandable is this going to be, not just in terms of, um, you know, uh, I want to have this adventure and I want to have it in the Great Pyramid of Giza, and I've found a 3D simulation of the Great Pyramid of Giza online, and I want to bring it on and put it into the thing? Or how easy is it going to be for a GM to build you know, from scratch, their own story and their own adventure using it. And my third question is, for the nascent game designer who really does want to um, uh, put in their own theory about how lacquered armor works, how easy is it going to be to get at that sort of rules meet as a as a would-be designer to say, no, lacquered armor in 14% of documented cases turns a iron or bronze steel blade and it is only a, a sword blade and it is only watered steel and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and, and Q85 pages on RPG net. Right. Well, what you would do in that last instance mm -hmm. is you would uh, assign the character a lacquered armor tag mm -hmm. and then characters who are especially good against lacquered armor, uh, you would assign them and good against lacquered armor tag. Right. And so then it would measure... Uh, when it saw those two tags in combination, that would become a positive for the guy who was good against lacquered armor. Okay. So that that tag system is built to be customizable to anything that you can have a word that you know that you can type in and, and make the, the tag. Now, obviously, this is something that's going to become, uh, if it launches, right? This is not a sure thing, certainly in terms of the Kickstarter. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it, it's unlike a pen and paper role-playing game. They can't you know, present you with the thing now. They're looking for development money to turn my design document into the thing. Right. Um, and the, the number of possible things that you can implement is uh, lower than the number of things they'll be able to implement from the beginning. And if this becomes a thing, though, people's demand for features will lead to those features being created. Right. Um, the, you were asking also about uh, if you want to create an adventure set in the Pyramids of Giza, there's a tiled mapping system, and then you put all the tiles together. You might have to make a few uh, tiles for the pyramid or whatever it is. But you would not only be able to do that, but then you can put that adventure, uh, which has a, and there's a structured adventure format that takes you through it and guides you through the process of st structuring uh, an adventure. You could then put that on the Storyscape store and other people could buy it. Right. Yeah. I, um, uh, I, I think that that's, I mean, I've always looked, even back in the old Neverwinter Nights days, I always sort of looked at that as, as sort of the, the magic killer app. And I think that they do it, and I'm going to sound like the world's biggest idiot if I'm wrong, but I'll go ahead and say it. I think they do stuff like that in, like, Minecraft in these other games, where they go to all kinds of trouble to build, you know, Shark Cathedral in Minecraft, and then they put it out there so that other people can go into Shark Cathedral in Minecraft and smash it with their hammer. Yeah, or whatever no, the Second Life is the same way. There are people who... Uh make a good living making imaginary clothing or buildings or TARDISes mm -hmm. for other people to use. Right. And so this sort of takes that principle, and so whether you're building a 3D model of 
a new character type or uh, creating an adventure, you can then not only have the fun of putting it out there, but you could uh, maybe make some scratch from it. So if this uh, really does take off and becomes the next big thing, and this will either uh, fizzle completely or be the next big thing, I would think, yeah. is that it will give designers an opportunity to just sort of directly deal with the store. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, in order to get published, you're no longer going through a publisher. You're just putting this up. And if enough people buy your thing, they buy it. So yeah. it's sort of the, um, the self-published ebook equivalent of uh, role-playing. Right. Like design. back in the day when you just, um, uh, in the, in the early days of D20, you'd put up another graph paper dungeon for four ninety nine, and, you know, see the, the money, roll if slowly in right and and slab town is very ambitious to get all sorts of uh name designers to create stuff uh for the game mm -hmm. but before uh they do that they, uh, they need, need the money to 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 create this uh the very ba basic version uh to build out from now another thing that inveterate uh, tweakers will tweak or will want to tweak is magic systems and that's not necessarily the, the same sort of tag based thing where you just tag a guy and says voodoo and then you know that guy's susceptible to voodoo you're going to want to have the magic system mechanically feel different if it's voodoo versus if it's theurgy versus if it's um uh aboriginal dreamtime magic are there is 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 there an open door there for playing with or is that going to have to be the thing that gets coded because it's uh weirdly janged into the uh, the actual sort of story physics of the game um well there are crunchy bits so you could have a a spell for example that does damage to uh, anybody who's standing on a bit of terrain with the snow tag, for example. And so mm -hmm. that is going to be part of the character creation system. And one of the questions then is to uh, what extent uh, they're able to release your crunchy bits that you create for your game into the general ecosystem. Mm -hmm. uh, because uh, there is a desire on the part of a lot of players for things that are crocked, right? We know from yes, other games that right. if you release something that's overpowered, there's a high demand for that, even though ultimately it wrecks people's fun. Mm -hmm. Because um, then everyone's got dreadnought armor, uh, lacquered dreadnought armor, and they're going around messing with you. Right. Um, and so anything that isn't just a tag that is a, a crunchy bit with more specified effects, whether it's the ninja smoke bomb or whatever, um, is going to have to go through um, more of a development process. The development process, because it's sort of Crowdsource in general is very interesting because, for example, we want to make sure that the thing that you choose, if you just hit the buttons and pick the simplest version of each character, is the best build of that character. So we can track what people who are customizing their characters are doing. And if it turns out that one of the initial spells or skills or powers that we think a blaster magician should have aren't on uh, anybody's list and that they're all swapping them out, we can then take what the actual default baseline character that everybody wants to make is and make that the character that you get very simply so that um, system mastery is is basically turned into a hive mind thing so that you can get the benefit of everybody else's experience and just automatically build the coolest character at the touch of a button and when people are customizing characters over time it will be to make them different rather than to make sure that you've found all of the hidden obligatory exploits that you need in order to make your character as effective as he can be. So, um, is there a, a, a sort of a flavor to the uh, fantasy that you're putting in that is... Uh, for, for example, if we look at a, at a, at a, a playthrough of, of the game, 
Is it going to look like Diablo and all the other sort of uh, standard D&D uh, F20 clone uh, fantasies? Or are there little, I, 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 maybe aesthetic is the word I want, a- aesthetic touches? This that... is going beyond my purview as designer into art direction. Okay. Uh, but certainly in terms of the rules design, the baseline thing feels like F20 without being F20 at all. Okay. And that's because F20 is a source of people's assumptions, and there most people have had their, you know, the, that's the largest mm-hmm. group of people, and this has to be sort of a, a mass thing where mass refers to the role-playing game right, hobby yeah. as much as possible. And there's so, certainly nothing wrong with F20 fantasy, obviously. Right. So I think, um, and we had some discussions with the team, because I think the tastes of the guys who run Slabtown are more in a GURPSy low fantasy, gritty direction than the uh, default taste of uh, gamerdom in general. And so I'm, you know, trying to make sure that it feels recognizably within that vibe without actually literally being a D20 or D&D or F20 game in any way. Okay. Well, I feel like I've uh, described uh, all of the different corners of of my hat. So Ken, maybe we can uh, move on to our final segment. The Twisting Staircase, the Iker-written pentacle, and the photograph of Madame Blavatsky glowering down at us from the wall indicate that once more we have entered the incense-scented precincts of the consulting occultist. And uh, this time around, I thought we would uh, summon up some ectoplasm and look at uh, yet another of the 19th century spiritualists who you could not swing a cat without hitting in 19th century America. And this would be Andrew Jackson Davis. Ken, can you start off by giving us the biographical one-on-one, or rather 101, on Andrew Jackson Davis? Well, to uh, begin, and I guess to end with, Andrew Jackson Davis was known as the Poughkeepsie Seer because he was a uh, resident of Poughkeepsie, New York. He was a product of uh, that burned-over district that we have discussed 8 million uh, other times in the Consulting Occultist Hut here with the Fox Sisters and with um, uh, uh, Pascal Beverly Randolph and all these other guys that uh, went out and found uh, spiritualism and magic in one or another degree of a mix. He's born in uh, 1826 and named for, at that time, uh, President, uh, or not quite President, but in two years will be President Andrew Jackson. Uh, the, the greatest American that ever lived, as his uh, mother said, and then um, moved to New York and set himself up as a uh, sort of a psychic or clairvoyant or a mesmerist, depending. He had run into a traveling mesmerist there in upstate New York and had discovered that he had a great talent for being hypnotized and saying things his audience wanted to hear, which is one of the key elements of being a seer. Um, he wrote a book called The Principles of Nature, explaining his uh, sort of astral projection views of the universe, um, including the fact that there were nine planets in the solar system, which was a lucky guess up until two or three years ago, I guess, and then it became a wrong guess again. <laughs> <laughs> but um, uh, it was it was very impressive until um, uh, international communism defeated uh, good old Pluto. And, and so he then, you know, sort of published a bunch of books, which, if you look at them, turn out to be... Um, I think plagiarism is a harsh word, but let's say um, 
uh, fulsome extensive homage, of, uh, extensive homages to Emanuel Swedenborg's work and to a number of other uh, mystics who are just being published in American editions. Not all of them uh, uh, openly registered with their uh, copyright holders in um, upstate New York. And so he was, in addition to his uh, gifts as a clairvoyant, apparently also a, a gifted speed reader and copyist. An uncredited disciple, as it were. Exactly. Although he always claimed that he got, if his work read just like Swedenborg, it was because uh, the ghost of Emanuel Swedenborg appeared to him on a hill in upstate New York and initiated him into the searing business. And that uh, Swedenborg was his uh, spirit medium and or his uh, spirit guide, and had given him the the four one one on the afterlife and Summerland and uh, the nine planets and all the other good data. And the best part is that the Church of Swedenborg has gotten far enough away from Swedenborg that they're embarrassed that their founder was Cray Cray and <laughs> just tried to ignore um, uh, Andrew Jackson Davis because the last thing in the world they wanted to say was, "Hey, you." Uh, Hick from Poughkeepsie with your crazy psychic healing. You've stolen Emanuel Swedenborg, our saintly founders. Oh, man, that's a terrible idea. Yes, yeah, so visions of the past are sacrosanct. But visions <laughs> of the present day are inconvenient at best. <laughs> Indeed. But, um, you know, say what you want. The searing business seemed to work out well for uh, our buddy Andrew Jackson, and he lived until 1910. So he dies basically at the same time that uh, Mark Twain does. I think his life is is um uh it, it brackets uh, Mark Twain pretty well and uh although I don't know that there's a Mark Twain connection to Andrew Jackson Davis there is a Edgar Allan Poe connection because Poe when he was a uh, newspaper stringer went to Jackson Andrew Jackson Davis's uh mesmerism parlor there in New York and listened to him lecture and saw him do a mesmeric trance and thought it was so awesome that he wrote the facts in the case of M Valdemar about the mesmerist who is kept alive at the moment of his death and uh, uh you know horror as it does in many Poe stories eventuates but he sort of got that uh that that thrill from Andrew Jackson Davis's uh performance so for that alone he deserves our uh, encomiums also he has a very impressive beard so is davis different enough from swedenborg to be uh considered an interesting new creator of uh, a cult mumbo jumbo I don't think that you can really consider him a creator. I think he really is, maybe you might say, an interpreter. He sort of takes Swedenborg and he takes a lot of that um, uh, of that old um, uh, sort of late Enlightenment, early Romantic crazy, and he translates it into the sort of simple American patent medicine type universe. He does a lot of faith healing. He does a lot of psychometry where he holds things and tells you about you know where your cat is been hiding your spoon or whatever and uh get, you know diagnoses your liver complaints and probably there was a lot less uh, cat spoon hiding in the 19th century as a result as a result yeah uh, i like one of his books is um uh arabula or the divine guest containing a new collection of new gospels the gospels being those according to saint confucius saint john greenleaf whittiers saint um uh emma hardinge saint ralph waldo emerson and uh many others who would have been i think uh, surprised and perhaps perturbed <laughs> to find themselves become neo-Swedenborgian saints. Um, I, it, it's, as we've discussed earlier, perhaps no more than Ralph Waldo Emerson deserves uh, than to be a saint in the gospel of Andrew Jackson Davis. But I think that his real gift is not for creation, but for um, 
a representation and sort of maybe cr instead of creating the um uh, the the body of of lore that he's teaching, he sort of creates the role or he perfects the role that eventually people like Edgar Casey will uh, go into that they'll be you know sort of psychometrists and healers and visionaries and talk guff about other planets and Atlantis and such. So was he like Casey in addition to doing the readings and the faith healings? Did he have the big prophecies that he uh, uh, broadcast, or was uh, he more just sort of uh, observing, observing, <laughs> observing the celestial spheres? <laughs> he he did he did some observating. He, yeah, con sarn, you're observating his prophecies as befit a uh, American of the 19th century instead of a uh, chucklehead of the 20th are less about Atlantis rising and people getting uh, right with their chakras and more about awesome stuff that's going to be invented by science once it masters the electrical gifts of, you know, dead folk and what. And so he had um, lots and lots of uh, sort of scientific pr predictions. You could sort of, I guess, say that it's part of that impulse that will eventually get um, uh, distilled down and piped into science fiction, although that might be a bridge too far for a genre historian, but he certainly is all about all the great stuff electricity is going to do for you. And keep in mind, of course, that he is not that far away from when electricity was a, a crazy mystical thing that Franz Anton Mesmer would use to get laid. So it's not, it's not quite the same thing as uh, Hugo Gernsback predicting that everyone's going to have the Zeppelin in every garage. So if you want to create a supernatural steampunk setting, you can then uh, look at his predictions and create a world in which uh, they were built. Mm -hmm. Right. And you can tie him in maybe with uh, John Murray Spear, who uh, builds an electrical Jesus in a barn and is, uh, I think, certainly worthy of, of further examination. But he's another one of those sort of folks that uh, pop up in, in uh, New York in our spiritualist age. Um, so uh, my usual question, of course, is uh, how much did he uh, believe his own hokum? I... I don't know. I get the sense that guys like Davis and guys like Casey, and not all of the guys like Davis and the guys like Casey, but the ones that really, really make it huge, almost have to have some ability to believe it while they're spouting it. That when Andrew Jackson Davis writes, you know, um, uh, the philosophy of special providences, and someone comes out and says, this is basically, you know, word for word copied from these other things, there's a moment at which he does not say, yeah, I know, I copied him, and at which he says, but it's spiritual wisdom. Can it really be copied? I think that there's, obviously, there's some self-serving uh, quality to it, but I don't think he's out there, you know, trying to get everyone to die of liver failure. Right. And well, if you're a believer and you have the same visions as the other guy, that just confirms that your visions are, are correct. Absolutely. And if the fact that you fact-checked your visions in the other guy's book merely means that you're a, a, a good researcher, not a... Um, uh, not a not a not a hoaxer or a plagiarist. Well, you got to make sure that what you saw is uh, is what is already established. Yeah, I mean, I I don't think that there's any indication, or I have never run across any indication. Obviously, I'm not a Davis scholar, but I've never run into any. He doesn't have like a a trail of abandoned wives, um, uh, the the way that uh, some of our buddies do. He doesn't have, um, you know, a, a if he had a drug habit, it's a drug habit we should all have, given that he lives into his nineties, um, and he's you know he's not um. Uh, you know, driving around in a solid gold Zeppelin the way that, uh, you know, a lot of your cult leaders do. So, so he's a little less circus than yeah, a lot of his I, contemporaries. I, I think he's sort of, you know, down home. And he doesn't do like what da Daniel Douglas Home does or, or some of these other American, um, uh, or that some of the American guys, and go to Europe and perform before crowned heads and make a big winking deal out of it. I think he mostly just um, 
hung around New York and, and did visions for people and, you know, kept himself in canned beans by, uh, by such means. He was a fan of the Shakers, um, and so therefore the Shakers liked him too. I think he sort of looked back and saw her prophetic tradition as similar to what he believed that he was doing. So we've got the Poe connection. We've got the option of taking his predictions and making them real in a supernatural steampunky world. Uh, what other use can we make of him in fiction and games? Well, the last uh, sort of um, Andrew Jackson Davis universal joint is the theory that I think is mostly believed by Andrew Jackson Davis scholars and not so much by Abraham Lincoln scholars is that Andrew Jackson Davis was one of the psychics or spiritualists, I shouldn't say psychics, uh, consulted by President Lincoln during the Civil War. And whether that was merely to get some sort of solace during this grotesque uh, uh, mass slaughter, or whether he is giving President Lincoln Swedenborgian advice based on astral projection over the southern troop dispositions, I think that depends on your game. But uh, he is, uh, like many of our of our better uh, occultists, a staunch Union man, and uh, he's for Lincoln and uh, Union, and so therefore, I in, I approve of the notion that uh, he and Swedenborg and uh, maybe uh, Johnny Appleseed and uh, John Murray Spear are out there, you know, keeping uh, the the the, uh, the Summerland front from being filled up with uh, Confederate dead. Yes, and in mere reality, it's not uh, implausible to think that there was some influential figure that asked Lincoln to talk to the guy, and Lincoln did it to uh, satisfy them because there were a lot of spiritualists at this time, and some of them uh, quite highly positioned. So uh, do you rank him uh, because he's not as uh, circus and uh, uh, pilfered from uh, Swedenborg as uh, sort of uh, less interesting than others of, of his contemporaries? You have to work harder to uh, find these uh, bits of uh, synchronism with him? I mean, the the thing about Davis is, it's my same problem with Casey, that because he is so anodyne in terms of not, you know, believing anything that's uniquely crazy to him and not going out and, you know, having a heroin-fueled sex cult, that it's difficult to do anything particularly with him. It's the, it's the standard, you know, the good magician is never as fun as the bad magician type situation. Uh, and I think that uh, my my beef with, with Davis, like with a lot of the sort of um, upstate New York spiritualist tradition, is that once you've sort of, once you've seen it once, it's the same sort of thing that you see over and over and over again. And drilling all the way into his 700 pages electrical uh, predictions to find the one neat thing for a steampunk game, that might be, that might be a little more work than a lot of people uh, <laughs> want to uh, go to. And so if you want to put him in your campaign, he might well be the good magician, the one protecting the Summerlands that you as the characters are trying to prevent from being assassinated by the, uh, by the evil bad guy so that he's sort of a, uh, a minor uh, NPC or a background figure in somebody else's uh, more propulsive fiction. Yeah, I mean, and, it's, and again, he's, even if he's your Dumbledore, it's not like Dumbledore is particularly boring, but it's... The books aren't, you know, called Dumbledore and the easily avoided problem. They're called Harry Potter and the easily avoided problem, and that's <laughs> what the uh, that's what the narrative is really about. And so, I, I, you know, maybe as a as a young man, you can put together a league of extraordinary spiritualists out there um, getting in fist fights in uh, upstate New York. But the trouble is, th they've all pretty much got the same power, uh, which is talk to ghosts and imagine stuff about Mars. 
Uh, well, I think uh, then we have uh, fully plumbed Andrew Jackson Davis and therefore completed another podcast. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Phoenix. Sand and Steam Productions. Atlas Games. Dork Tower. Pro Fantasy Software. And Pelgrane Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Enter the labyrinth by clicking the donate button at canandrobintalkaboutstuff.com. Join such illustrious patrons as Guillaume Dodin, Aaron Petify, Jeremy French, and Frank Bailey. Exploit our reach by advertising with us. Grab the rate sheet at our site. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. 